Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Today we have Oren Cass with us. Oren is the author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. And until recently, he was senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Now he is working on founding a new organization that will specifically challenge the economic orthodoxy of market fundamentalism embraced by American conservatives. In the January issue of First Things, he, uh, he went into some of these themes and will take that essay as really the springboard for our discussion and go into uh, issues raised by the book as well. Thank you for joining us, Oren. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, the title of the First Things essay was The Problem with the Culture Problem. And you begin that essay, you, you can lay out what, what, what those figures in the title are, but you begin by going back to that controversial Moynihan report from the 60s. And you quote a statement that Senator Moynihan made about it a few years later. And I, I thought I'd read the quote and let you take it from there. Uh, Moynihan said that the study, quote, began in the most orthodox setting, the U.S. Department of Labor, to establish at some level of statistical conciseness what, quote, everyone knew, that economic conditions determine social conditions, whereupon it turned out that what everyone knew was evidently not so. <laughs> I, I find that the, the, the economic versus social debate fascinating in in part because it's so pervasive you know i guess I, I remember really first being exposed to it back in college when i was taking a course on a political science course on poverty and so much of the discussion and the debate and the readings were were framed in these terms where either you had to be a, a liberal and say that you know this is an economic problem and therefore we're going to solve it by giving people money or you have to be a conservative who says no no this is a social problem uh, and therefore, we're only making it worse if we give people money. And, and that was sort of the dichotomy through which virtually everybody seemed to be writing. And then later in life, as I, as I started doing my own work, focused significantly on, on anti-poverty questions, I, I found by, by far the most frequent question I would get from conservative audiences was, Take, take whatever I was saying, whatever policy reform I might be talking about. Yeah, but isn't this really a cultural problem? It, it was just, it is, it is the, the knee-jerk reaction to which I think people on the right have, have trained themselves to have to, to any of these discussions. And, and now, especially as, as the debate, debate about America's economic challenges has moved beyond traditional war on poverty fight, we're still in the exact same place. So if, if the question is, why is male labor force participation down? Almost any, anything you talk about, the, the response is, well, but isn't it really a cultural problem? Um, if you want to talk about why you know, American industry is struggling or, or, or what careers people, whatever, whatever concern one might have, the right of center seems to think we're just supposed to say it's a cultural problem. And, and I, I, I think we, we lost track of what that meant or, or when we should mean it somewhere along the way. Right. Well, did the Moynihan report give uh, solid uh, evidence that they could draw that the problems that we saw in the, quote, Negro family at the time really were much more cultural problems than they were economic problems? 
Well, I think the important thing about the Moynihan report, and, and it's it's very clear, I think, in the quote, is that there's a difference between talking about what are the problems people are experiencing versus trying to define causation. And and the specific point that Moynihan is making is that we all assumed economic conditions determine social conditions, meaning whatever social dysfunction we are observing, it is it is the economic problems that came first and caused the social conditions. Whereas, in fact, the data doesn't necessarily bear that out. That's a very different question from if just as a descriptive matter, you are looking at the challenges that community was facing, that Negro families were facing and asking to what extent are they facing economic challenges versus social challenges. Um, I think the, the answer would obviously be both. And even to the extent that you might ask, if you think about Charles Murray's work in, in losing ground and the question of how, you know, how welfare policy actually made things worse, if you say we've created a safety net that makes it relatively more attractive to stay on the dole then go find a job, you're talking about economic conditions. You're, you're not actually talking about social conditions or culture at all. You're talking about the very concrete economic incentives that people face. And, and of course, you're saying in part that, that government has created that picture. But the, the opposite of the coin, the, the opposite side of the coin from saying benefits are too high or too generous or, or discourage work is to say work isn't sufficiently rewarding and doesn't encourage work. Those, those two things actually go together. One of your points in the essay is that these, these sort of polarized positions that, that people have taken that has led liberals and conservatives to dig trenches, you call them trenches, for themselves and that it really has caused a lot of them to stop thinking broadly and flexibly about the, the conditions that come up. I'm just gonna give a, a summary from your essay where you lay out the different sort of responses that, that they have. The liberal identifies the obstacles typical of life in the underclass and proposes ways to lower them. The conservative identifies the dysfunctional behaviors that sustain the underclass, seeks to remove public subsidies, encouraging those behaviors, and works to reinforce social norms that push people toward better ones. One of the problems here is that they can't really talk to one another and work out for forms of both uh, factors. That this is, this is what you think has stymied a lot of public policy in, in, in the past, correct? That's. I think that's definitely part of the problem. You know, when uh, I think to to the layman or or to to someone who's not used to to sitting on on think tank panels having these fights, it it seems so strange that we wouldn't all just agree the answer is both. That that obviously there are economic problems and obviously there are social and cultural problems. One of the points I, I try to emphasize in the in the essay is that. The reason the answer can't be both is because if your answer, which answer you prefer, points in in a diametrically opposite direction in terms of your policy response. If if you think the problem is is economic in the sense that you mean people don't have access to enough resources, then you would say, well, we should provide people with more resources. If you if you think the problem is cultural, uh, in the sense that you, you think people are making bad decisions. Then part of that, then giving people resources, regardless of what decisions they make, makes things worse. It's the opposite of what you should do. And so it, it is, in a sense, a, a fight that I think we have to have 
I think where the 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 trench warfare has has kind of gone gone astray is that as we've kind of dug deeper and deeper into the trenches, we've we've kind of forgotten what what they meant in the first place or or why we even adopted those positions. And so we've we've taken the and specifically conservatives who have dug in on on the cultural side have taken this argument that you know this is a cultural problem and somehow taken that to mean this is a problem that has nothing to do with public policy and that we can't do anything about. And if if you think back to what we actually meant when we started digging those trenches and having that fight, that's not actually what we meant. If you think back to Charles Murray and losing ground, he was saying the exact opposite thing. He was saying this is a public policy problem and something public policy can do something about. And so that's why in the essay, I encourage us, instead of using the, the terms economic and cultural to, to use these terms, resources and decisions, that, that what liberals are really saying is we just need to give people more resources. And what conservatives are really saying is, no, 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 that's, that's exactly backward. People need to be making better decisions and just giving them resources is, is going to have the opposite effect. But if, if what you're concerned about is making good decisions and understanding what decisions people make and why, that isn't a license to throw up your hands and say, well, nothing you can do about that. That's actually the starting point for a, a really important inquiry about what is happening and, and how we can do better. You know, I want to come back to that about the, the decision making issue, which is important element of the second half of your essay. But let me ask you this first, the, the polarization or the, the entrenchment of each side, are, are they digging in so much because if, if liberals believe that, or liberals do believe that if they concede a little bit to the culture or to the family structure as part of the problem with, say, poverty, then they're going to give Republicans ammunition to take money out of some of government programs for the war on poverty and whatnot. Whereas conservatives say, if we give them any economic explanation for what is going on, then the liberals are going to start doing more social engineering. They're going to start interfering with the market more, and they're going to start trying to uh, pour even more money into social programs, government programs that, that we don't think work. Is, is that really what it comes down to? The, the, the money for programs that they like or don't like? I think that's that's definitely the center of the di- dispute and the the place where kind of in, in very practical, tactical terms, the, the fight becomes irreconcilable, that you, you can't expand and cut programs at the same time. <laughs> you, wait, wait, you, you can't? <laughs> well, that's there you go. That's my that is my big policy insight for the for the day. The, uh, you know, what, what I have found, um, and, and this is a somewhat partisan statement, but I think it's fair, has been very frustrating in my conversations in, with folks on the left is that they are not even willing to move money around. That, that even if I say we are going to spend exactly as much next year as we did this year, helping disadvantaged families, fighting poverty, but can we at least agree that the allocation we have today is far from ideal? And if we spent less on food stamps and more in, uh, just took the money, we, some of the money we spend on food stamps and spent it instead on, uh, you know, a wage subsidy to encourage people to, to get jobs and to make those jobs pay better. Or if we 
changed the way we structure Medicaid to encourage less spending in Medicaid, but instead encouraged much more spending on, you know, good job training programs. Pick pick whatever formula you want that even that is a non-starter. You know, I remember many, oh gosh, maybe about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when some empirical research came out about the effectiveness of Head Start, which is a massive, I think it's a $500 million program of, of uh, uh, resources and, and support for, for poor families with, with children who are pre, pre-K. Uh, and that the program was designed to make the these kids get a little bit of a head start so that when they enter kindergarten they can compete uh, with the other kids they're not falling so far behind but it turned out that whatever gains that head start was producing they disappeared after a couple of years in school and that this was pretty solid empirical data it had been repeated many times showing that the original intent of head start just didn't work didn't matter. You cannot take money out of this program. I mean, all these, the whole, a whole industry came out and protested this. And, and so it was, uh, uh, it was, it lost. Head Start didn't lose any funding at all. Typical, typical story. Well, that's certainly typical. And, and, and it, it's typical even, you know, think about it from the other side when, uh, when there's a, a new priority that everyone agrees is a better use of the money. So if you take the earned income tax credit, which is essentially a, a subsidy, it, it gives low-income households cash when they work more. Um, this is something that, that President Obama really wanted to expand, and at the time, Speaker Paul Ryan also wanted to expand. So, so you had consensus that this was a good program that we should make bigger. And even under those conditions, you say, fine, pick literally look across, you know, the $4 trillion federal government, pick, pick whatever you think is least effective, right? And, and we're going uh, to put that toward this program that we all love and, and think is actually working well. Um, and the Obama administration just would not include that in their proposal. It, it had to be funded through new taxes and, and an expansion in the overall size of spending. So this, this tension is, is, is incredibly powerful and real. I think the part of the and 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 I would say is is it is important. I mean, I, I'm not here to say you know the the right of center should just give up and agree that we should spend more. That's not that's not right because as you said, there's so much that doesn't work at all. Just putting more money into things isn't a solution. So so within that fight, it's important to continue having that fight and and pushing for spending money better. Uh, you know, frankly, I would say I, I don't think it's especially constructive to push for just cuts. Were liberals right to suspect conservatives of just looking to do that? Cuts, just cut, cut, cut. I think there's a time where that was certainly the case. I think in in the in the 2000s, somewhat in the 90s, the that that what you would call anti-poverty policy on the right wasn't really anti-poverty policy at all. It was just budget policy. There was almost no interesting new thinking post-welfare reform about how to actually help people um, at, at the low end of the income distribution. It was just a matter of, we need to find savings somewhere. Here are some programs that aren't working very well. Therefore, we propose spending next on, you know, we propose spending less on them next year. Uh, you, you know, you brought up welfare reform from what, what you're talking, one wonders how that ever got passed. It's a fair, I mean, it's a fair question. And, and 
the the politics of it and 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 Bill Clinton's role in it, I think, is is incredibly important to keep in mind. And it was an incredibly contentious issue within the Democratic Party. You know, there were very senior policy folks and politicians who were really committed to it, uh, and others who were infuriated and resigned. And it, it remains, you can start a really big fight in a, at, a, at a left of center cocktail party today by just saying, so welfare reform, and, and then walking away. See, I thought that welfare reform was a win for the Democrats, with the voters at least. Well, it, they proved that they were willing to actually do something. So, you know, that's true. I I think one really important thing to keep in mind about welfare reform, of course, is it didn't really change very much of our safety net spending. Uh, I mean, we spend more than a trillion dollars a year on means-tested programs. And welfare, you know, at the time was uh, maybe 30 billion. So, and, and now is still around 20 billion. So you're, you're talking about a, a 1% uh, of total spending shift in a program that was two to 5%, depending on how you look at it. Oren, what was the famous saving on, you know, a hundred million here, a hundred million there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. <laughs> that's, that's true. And, and, but, you know, I think one of the, the, the things to, to learn from that experience is that what was important about welfare reform wasn't how much money can we save. It was how can we actually do something differently? And so I think that's that that's a really important lesson to take away and keep in mind. And as we've as we've moved forward, I think over the last, say, five years, there has been much more interesting thinking on on the right of center about about approaches to anti-poverty policy. Um, that that do engage more in in the question of okay how do we actually uh, build a safety net that works and that has the right incentives and and how do we actually help people at who are in challenging circumstances uh, but then be, beyond that we face a whole lot of economic challenges that that have nothing to do with traditional anti poverty policy that that are about the health of our labor market generally that are about the kinds of jobs our economy is producing that are about the long term health of the economy and growth and productivity. Uh, and, and, and so as you move further into those conversations, the, the traditional Moynihan 1965 economic versus social debate just isn't that relevant. And yet we've sort of dug the trenches so deep that people almost can't climb out of them and walk over to the new battlefields. Okay, you, you mentioned decision-making. Bad decision-making is a form of really dysfunction. When, when, when we see people making bad decisions over and over again, you know, a, a woman having three children with three different men, uh, none of whom are really in much shape to be, to be fathers. But you say decision-making has gotten harder. In recent times, decision-making is harder. Why is decision-making harder? Well, I think there are two reasons that, that I would focus on in particular. One is that the set of available decisions can get worse, that, that we all kind of face a, a set of options when we are trying to make a decision. And if there are really great, attractive options that look fun and easy and have good outcomes, then making a good decision is easy. If that kind of positive, constructive pathway looks really hard and is more speculative, then it's going to be a lot harder. And so if, if you look at the evolution, certainly in our culture, but also I think importantly in our economy in, in the last few decades, I think the kind of standard story that, that we would like to tell of 
you know, you, you, you get an education, you get married, you get a job and, and you're sort of set up to build a stable life and support a family that that has become harder and, and less likely to be successful, especially if you're looking at it from the perspective of, of the woman um, finding the young man who is moving on that pathway and, and likely to, to, to hit those checkpoints and, and provide what he needs to to the relationship is, is getting harder. And so if in that context, uh, it's going to be harder and we're going to see fewer people making good decisions. And so, so that's one dimension. And then the second one that I think is really important to keep in mind is how people make decisions. That, that what I've just described is sort of the objective playing field of what's out there, what your options are, what the likely outcomes are. Entirely separate from that is the subjective question of how an individual understands those options. What do they think the options are? What do they think the outcomes are going to be? Uh, and, you know, sure, you could go on Google and pull up some, you know, <laughs> CDC government research on the percentages, um, but more likely you are making your decisions based on personal experience and, and information from other people in your network. Uh, and so as that degrades, as I think it has, uh, and also as our, as our country increasingly segregates socioeconomically as people in, in struggling households and neighborhoods become further removed from people in successful households and neighborhoods, and as there's less contact and, and cross-pollination, uh, I think it also becomes harder to make good decisions, regardless of what the actual set of, of objective possibilities might be. And, and so I think both of those are key forces that we have to think about. It, it, it helps to make good decisions when you have a few non-dysfunctional people around you. Yes, exactly. And, and if I could throw in quickly a plug here for a recent book I read that I just found really fascinating on this point, it's called The Human Network. And what it did is it, it takes a lot of the kind of very computer science-y uh, network theory that's out there and applies it to human relationships. And it shows how the, the same math that you use in all sorts of network modeling when you look at human relationships and you think as each, you know, each person is a dot in, in a picture and, and the lines connect the dots wherever people know each other, um, you can actually create some really interesting models that show, for instance, you know, as you expect people to learn and, and behave based on the behaviors of, of those around them, uh, if you have fairly segregated networks, uh, people in, a, in, in one network where a few people start behaving badly, you can get a domino effect very quickly in, in that network that never jumps over to the other one. Whereas if you have a single more integrated network, the, the bad behavior by the few individuals is much less likely to, to spill over beyond that. And so obviously that's an incredibly abstract model. It's, it's not a perfect description of life, but I think there's an intuition there that's correct, that as we see the, the sort of coming apart of our of our communities in a lot of ways, and as we leave more people who are in in disadvantaged circumstances further removed from people who might otherwise be role models for them, we should expect the decision making to get worse. Now, one of the things you note is that the massive influx of resources has not improved the decision making of of the poor and the underclass. Why hasn't that happened? Well, I, I don't think there's any reason. To expect that it would, I, I think, <laughs> I mean, just 
as a logical matter, you you could tell a story that it should you you know and 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 this is an argument you'll hear from some people that that some of the the um, pressures that are imposed by poverty that are imposed by a lack of resources actively make it harder to make good decisions that that when you are facing the the sharpest resource constraint it's, it becomes very hard to adopt a, a for instance a long-term perspective um, it it you know you you are more constantly stressed out and just focused on on the next immediate challenge. And so I, I certainly think you can make an argument that relieving some of those pressures could have some prospect of of helping people in in broader ways. But empirically, it doesn't really seem to happen. You know, when we look at the the differences in behaviors, when we look at who you know becomes successful in life, the, the resources you start with turns out just not to be that important compared to the the community you're growing up in, whether you have, you know, whether you're being raised in a stable two-parent family. And so in 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 that context, the the real question is, well, when you when you just transfer a lot of resources in, what happens to incentive? And and the huge problem you face is that if you're going to transfer resources in, you're almost certainly going to do it in a way that says uh, and we we phase at those resources out as you start to do more for yourself. And if that's the structure of your program, then the more resources you send in, the you both the more you, by definition, penalize people for t- trying to do more for themselves, and the less distinction you create between those who are and are not doing something for themselves. The more being on the dole and relying on government programs starts to look like working and supporting your family. And and when you create those conditions, you both undermine the very direct economic incentives um, and can create a lot of, I think, very serious cultural and social problems. Last question. Uh, You say that a lot of liberals, and many conservatives too, look at the economy as this sort of unstoppable force, that the market has a historical momentum and we can't really change it. It's, it's the Titanic uh, or it's a, you know, the ocean liner and that we really just have to adapt to it instead of trying to conceive it differently. Where, where do you come down on this? I think the metaphor of an, an ocean liner is actually a, a pretty good one. I mean, um, you know, the, the market is, is a, an enormous behemoth with incredible momentum and, you know, isn't something that, that, can just be quickly pushed wherever you want it to go, uh, even assuming you you knew where you wanted to go or how to push it. Um, and and so, you know, I I certainly think both that markets are incredibly powerful and in general an incredibly positive force in our society. Um, where where I think we go too far is where we assume that both that markets are are com- completely unchannelable. That is that you can't steer the ocean liner at all. You must simply sit and watch it float wherever it might float. And where we assume that if we're going to have a conflict, if if what the market is doing is is incompatible with human needs and human nature, well, then the market wins and we're just going to have to ask human needs and human nature to change. And and so I, I would say in a sense that, you know, hum, human nature is kind of the iceberg here. And 
you can say, well, there's just nothing we can do. We're just, just the ocean liners just going to have to plow right over that iceberg. But, but the reality, if you take that approach is I think you're actually going to, going to cause a massive amount of damage and pain in the process. Whereas as a, a much more responsible way to approach it is to recognize that markets need to accommodate human needs and human nature, that at the end of the day, markets are in service to human needs and human nature. And so while, while we are glad that we have them and want them to do wonderful things for us, we also have to recognize not just an, an ability, but, but an obligation to do some steering and to say that uh, at the end of the day, the, the, the market is subservient to the society and to, to human needs. And, and if it's not meeting our needs, if it's, if it's proving corrosive, then the response isn't to shrug and say, nothing you can do. The response isn't as, as we like to do to say, well, it must be a cultural problem, go fix the culture. Uh, it has to be to say, you know, we, we need to work on the culture also, but we also need to work on the market. We didn't really get to the book, uh, but a lot of these ideas are, are in the book. The book is, I'll, I'll tell our listeners, The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Oren, thank you for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.